is a bi-weekly um, podcast slash live show that we have where we, I interview um, experts, professionals, professors, students, and activists on various issues from higher education, free speech, and American culture. Um, we also have a podcast, I've mentioned before, we are on Spotify, where you can download us on any platform such as Apple Podcasts um, and Anchor as well. You can listen anytime and share that way and give us a five star rating if you like what you hear today. So today we welcome Miss Rachel Bovard. Uh, Rachel is a senior director of policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute, CPI. Um, in DC. She has a decade of experience, over a decade of experience fighting for the conservative policies in Washington. Beginning in 2006, she, she served uh, in both the House and Senate in various roles, including as legislative director for Senator Rand Paul and as policy director for the Senate Steering Committee under the successive chairmanships of Senator Pat Toomey and Senator Mike Lee where she was cracking the enigma that is Hill procedure, <laughs> advising committee members on strategy related to floor procedure and policy matters, an invaluable skill in DC, knowing how to get things done. She also served as director of policy services for the Heritage Foundation. In 2013, she was named one of National Journal's most influential women in Washington under 35. Rachel's policy analysis and punditry appear widely in print and on television. Rachel serves as the USA Today's Board of Contributors and is also senior tech columnist for The Federalist. Along with CPI's chairman, Senator Jim DeMint, Rachel is the co-author of Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. She also serves on the Board of Counsel for National Policy Action and the Advisory Board of American Moment and the Advisory Board of the American Conservative. Wow, what a resume. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Um, so I wanted to take the opportunity to pick your brain about a really interesting topic that you've written a lot about, and I'm really, I really admire how much you've kind of broken it down for the public um, of big tech, social media, and essentially free speech and censorship, and all of these topics that we hear thrown around a lot today. Um, but you know, it takes a lot to kind of get into the weeds on this, especially if you don't know the uh, the terminology and kind of the legal side of everything. Um, so we hope to address the question today in this interview of why does it seem that the world of communication is coming down on free speech? At first, social media and big tech companies like Google and Apple created a world of information flow, broad spanning communication capabilities and expediency. The demand and the capabilities grew so quickly, we never really took the time to step back and assess whether it is truly a good thing. The immediate results are very clearly good, you know, such as like medical advancement, global trade, raising poverty, people out of poverty, out of um, people out of poverty. Um, however, there's subtleness to the downsides that seems to have snuck up on us over time. These downsides bring us to a point where we are now debating issues that we thought were mostly settled in America. How much freedom are we actually willing to give up? The principle of free speech is one of the rights it seems that many are willing to sacrifice. Deplatforming and censorship have become accepted norms. Many often joke about it rather than expressing outrage. Yes, there's an increasing level of distrust by Americans towards big tech companies, but distrust coupled with complacency is rarely effective. There seems to be no energy to change our behavior and make ourselves less beholden to these tech giants. Today, we are witnessing more content moderation than ever before. Some well-known examples, our former president Donald Trump has been suspended on all social media platforms, both Apple and Amazon worked together to deplatform Parler, a primary conservative app, a primarily conservative app, and stories like Hunter Biden laptop are being given very little airway. 
The most increasingly disconcerting thing is that most people don't even realize how much freedom they have already relinquished to these companies. By becoming entirely dependent on them and then letting them control the information we absorb, they inevitably affect our behavior and our decision-making. We have to ask the question, are we in control of ourselves any longer? How much freedom is left for us? It brings me to, to the concerns expressed by the late Richard Weaver regarding technology. He was very much a Luddite, <laughs> so we can, we can take everything that he says about technology, but for the primary reason that he believes in technology has makes slave us, slaves of us all. Once we decide to accept the technology and build our society and culture around it, we then become powerless against it. We cannot live without it. So Rachel, do you think technology has made slaves of us all? <laughs> I think in a certain way, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, it's interesting when we talk about all these platforms and technologies, you know, very often the rejoinder is, well, you consent to them. You know, you, you adopt them, you willingly in, enter this contract. But I think there are many of us, myself included, who have said, well, literally yes, but that consent is not meaningful. People have not understood the downsides. They have not understood, to your point, what, what they are trading away. And I think it's just now really that we are as a society starting to grapple with what that has meant. Because I think people, for the sake of convenience, have not totally understood the autonomy that they're trading away, mm -hmm. um, how much we are tracked, how we are functionally commoditized by these platforms yeah. and by these products, how privacy, the nat nature and notion of what it means to be a private individual in America is fundamentally changed. And so these are all things that are matters of public policy because they are matters of our social consensus and our social fabric. And when you have technology that begins to change the way in which we live together, our social contract, what it means to be a free individual, that becomes a matter of our self-government. And it was interesting, Justice Clarence Thomas sort of recently opined on this from the Supreme Court when he was talking about the technology platforms and sort of yeah. making the case for at least considering common carriage. You know, he, he actually historically looked at this problem and he said, every time we've had a technology that has begun to change, you know, the way we relate to each other, change our country and, and what it means to be, to live in America freely, common carriage is what we've turned to. Hmm. I mean, he, he spoke specifically about the railroads, about, you know, yeah. the telegram, um, yeah. about all these, you know, different areas that, that we've applied common carrier to, but that's fundamentally the question that is at, at root here that our public policymakers are now trying to grapple with. Wow, that, that's a really good concise way to kind of outline the, the philosophical questions that really underlie a lot of this. Um, but let's step back from those deeper questions for now, because I actually want to address something when we talk about big tech, can we, what are we talking about? How much power do these companies actually have? How much do they actually control information wise? Yeah, it was interesting um, recently when the House Antitrust Subcommittee led by Democrats engaged in this 16 month investigation of big tech. <laughs> and they chose to define big tech as Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook. Okay. And they notably left out Twitter because <laughs> for them, this was an examination of market power. So it was an economically driven investigation. But for, I think, for a lot of conservatives, they look at it from a speech lens. Yeah. And in that way, you know, Twitter would necessarily be incorporated. So I think for a lot of public policymakers, it's, you know, Twitter, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook constitute big tech in a popular parlance. But okay. I think it could include, you know, any number of other companies as well. Okay. And so 
typically when we're looking at the media or what's going, what, how people are describing the threats of big tech or what's going on with big tech, um, some phrases are thrown around that I think, you know, it's, <laughs> it's so funny because the government's so big these days. You know, when you look at like the executive, when people talk about the government, they're usually talking about just the executive branch because when you think it's like you got the Department of Labor, the Department of Defense and State, you have all these departments that are real, pretty widely known just because they're so large, it's impossible not to know about them. Right. But there are smaller government institutions as well that are controlled by the executive, like the FCC and these types of other, you know, government arms that essentially kind of enforce and regulate things as well. So when we hear like people talk about about big tech and regulations, we often hear Section 230 and FCC a lot. And for just like the general public, can you explain what the FCC is, what its reach is, and what it's there to do, but then also what Section 230 is, why people want to repeal and reform, like what are the parts of Section 230 we should actually be paying attention to? Yeah, sure. I'll start with Section 230, which, right. you know, people, again, hear all the time thrown around. And it's actually, for as much attention as it gets, it's a tiny provision of law. <laughs> it's, you know, 26 words. You'll hear them often referred to as the 26 words that invented the internet, which is a bit of an overstatement. But it was part of a much bigger law, actually, that passed Congress in 1996. And most of that law was actually struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional speech regulation. But Section 230 remained. And what it did, it was what it was designed to do was actually the original title was called the Family Online Empowerment Act. Oh. It was designed for around really one purpose, and that was to get porn off the internet. <laughs> that was what it was but designed. Not a guess. It yeah. was, was designed to do. And essentially um, incentivized and protected the nascent technology companies to moderate, to take down porn without fear of lawsuit. So it created this immunity from lawsuit. It says, you know. The companies are able to take down lewd, harassing, lascivious, you know, et cetera, et cetera, content um, or content, you know, otherwise objectionable, which has now been interpreted to include all kinds of things, yes. but that in doing so, they would not be subject to lawsuits. So okay. um, it was originally a very porous liability shield. It was a pretty narrowly constructed one that I would argue has been just stretched and distorted by the big tech companies with the aid of the courts to become this bulletproof immunity. Yeah. Um, and they, they hide behind this protection to remove all kinds of content. And now people will say, oh, well, the First Amendment allows them to do that, right? They're private platforms. They're allowed to associate or disassociate with content that they agree or disagree with. And that's factually true. The difference is that Section 230 privileges that First Amendment behavior. Right. It, it, they movie companies, newspapers, you know, other First Amendment actors, they can disassociate with content they don't like as well, but they're subject to you know, lawsuit and claims and, and you know, private rights of action that these tech companies are not subject to. So they are protected in a way that other First Amendment hmm. actors are not. Now you'll see um, other internet platforms benefit from Section 230 as well, right? You comment sections on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. If you say something ridiculous in the comment section of the New York Times, the New York Times cannot be sued for what you say. So it's useful in that regard, right. but for the tech companies, it's become this sort of bulletproof shield that's allowed them to act with impunity without consequence in many ways. Right. Now, how that relates to the Federal Communications Commission, which is an independent agency sort of outside the scope of the executive, but they regulate a lot of our telecommunications mm -hmm. um, and certain parts of how the internet works. And so under the Trump administration, you know, the NTIA actually petitioned the FCC to help them to, to, to uh, say, will you interpret Section 230, right? Yeah. Looking at this very bloated <laughs> sort of statute that you know many members of Congress and the president obviously felt had gone awry of its original intent, 
will the FCC come in and clarify mm -hmm. what is allowed and what is not under the terms of the statute? Now, that's one way to get at the problem. The other way is to legislate. Mm -hmm. And so you're seeing a lot of uh, reform and repeal proposals being put forward in Congress. Okay. Um, before we get into like what Congress is doing, because I do want to talk to you about that. Um, one more thing that always tends to come up in this conversation is, is I think it's publisher versus platform. Is that the, the versus the two that are usually compared to one another, like how you're in, how you fall under section 230 and whether or not you can actually remove and censor folks? Yeah. So this is a, the section 230 purists will be like, you know, that's a <laughs> distinction that's never actually made in the law, but uh, which is true. But uh -huh. as a colloquial matter, it sort of gets at this idea of sort of publisher versus distributor liability. Okay. You know, are these platforms protected as publishers or are they protected as distributors? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that legal scholars, I think, can do a good job of parsing because it gets to this notion that are these just sort of hosting sites, yeah. right? Like, yeah. are or are they putting their thumb on the scale? Yeah. And should one behavior be protected and, and the other not or vice versa? So it's not a distinction that's actually made in the law. There's no yeah. sort of publisher or platform distinction or requirement, um, but it is how we think about how these, these platforms operate that very much comes into play. Because when you look at their behavior, right? When you look at their behavior, when, it, when they're fact checking, mm -hmm. when they're not just removing content, but putting you know, barriers up to right. you seeing it, yeah. When, they're, when Twitter creates that um, trending topic sidebar, yeah. when they choose how to program their algorithms, it's a very sort of valid legal question of, are they creating their own content at that point? Yeah. Because yeah. Section 230 is only designed to protect them from user-generated content, right. so what you and I create. Mm -hmm. But if they're creating their own editorial content, yeah. is that then subject to Section 230 protection? Hmm. And that's a question um, that some proposals in Congress are trying to deal with. Yeah, no, that's a really, I'm going to pull on that, the, the idea of how censorship, the methods of censorship real quickly, um, just because I'm, I'm curious, has it changed over time um, with how these big tech companies have decided how they want to censor? Um, or has it been pretty consistent and we just kind of are starting to notice it as we talk about it more? I mean, it's definitely changed because, and I think the, one of the reasons we've noticed it is because of this, the sheer scale yeah, okay. and size of these companies, right? Because these companies, you know, when, when Section 230 was created, um, you know, they were tiny. Some of them didn't even exist, right? <laughs> they, they weren't around. You, you were dealing with- Was it like 1996? 1996, yeah, yeah. right? So <laughs> the internet looks completely different, oh, right? Yeah. From, from what it did then. And interestingly, in the findings of, of Section 230 and the amendment, because it was offered as an amendment, that's mm -hmm. how tiny it is. You know, it talks mm -hmm. about how, you know, the goal of this provision is to create this open dialogue and, and you know, diverse political views online. And, and that was mm -hmm. the goal. I would argue that really hasn't happened. But part of that has been because, you know, instead of, a dozen, you know, similarly sized platforms, we really have just the big three, right? We have yeah. Google, we have Facebook, and we have Twitter. Right. And that, you know, when you have platforms that size, you know, Google filtering information for 90% of America, right? That, yeah. They have 90% market share. So people are filtering inf their information through Google. Facebook has 3 billion global users. You know, when you, when you have that magnitude, then of right. course you're noticing their content moderation decisions. And I do think it's inarguable that they have gotten much more political. Yeah. Right. They're not just taking down porn. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> I, and I could argue they're not even doing a good enough yeah. job at that. <laughs> no. Right. Uh, sex trafficking, as we know, still flourishes on these on these mm -hmm. platforms. Yeah. But they're very much acting in a very a much more aggressive political way. And I think you can tie that back to the 2016 election. 
Okay. That, that I think in my mind is when these platforms started to very aggressively moderate along ideological lines in ways that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, speaking of which, um, stemming just kind of from the election and the ideological shift, um, how is the government, I know you've written on this and this is kind of behind the case with President Trump that he's, that he's um, wrote about in a, as an op-ed last week. How is the government outsourcing censorship essentially? Like how, how could this be used against people? Has it been exacerbated by COVID? Um, that had, did that create an opportunity for the government to kind of outsource more censorship? I think we will look back on COVID as a real turning point in this debate because I've been writing for a number of years that I thought that this might be the direction that we were going down, which is you know, the government not actually taking the unconstitutional yeah. action because it would be unconstitutional for them, right. but outsourcing it to private companies by which it is not unconstitutional, right? right? So they're they're using private actors to engage in behavior they themselves, they themselves, the government mm -hmm. would not be able to do. And I think COVID has, has made this abundantly clear. And I think the first step down, I think what is now a fairly well-trodden path was last April when you saw Facebook to say, we are going to ban protest content. So people were organizing these rallies to protest lockdowns. It was anti-lockdown content. And Facebook says, no, you know, if it falls, if it runs afoul of what we think are local ordinances, not even laws, but guidances, ordinances, we are not going to allow it. And that was really the first time, you know, you saw these platforms begin to make a very subjective decision that they are going to you know, because it's one thing to remove blatantly illegal content, like right. if you're selling drugs or, mm -hmm. you know, trafficking or whatever. Right. But this, in many ways, were guidance. This was yeah. guidance. <laughs> um, and, and they were aligning themselves with a very specific set of parameters set by the government, not enforced in law and saying, you know, we're, we're moderating along these lines. Now we've seen that snowball, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when YouTube, I think Facebook and YouTube's owned by Google saying any content that runs afoul of the, what the World Health Organization is saying, we're not going to allow on our platform. Like, again, World Health Organization doesn't make law for the United States, right? <laughs> right. Um, and again, the World Health Organization back in January of 2020 was telling us all that COVID wasn't contagious between humans. So it's not like they are the infallible god of science. Oh, no. And that's just one example. <laughs> right. And, and we've seen it, you know, yeah. move beyond the medical community. You're now seeing DOD suggest that they are going to engage with private actors to pursue surveillance of Americans on social media in a way that would be illegal. Yeah. If DOD did it, it would be unconstitutional. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but they are, you know, purchasing data on individuals in the secondary data hmm. market and then using private companies to um, misrepresent themselves in social media functions yeah. in a way that DOD can't do. So this is a very real and in my mind, present danger yeah. of the outsourcing of unconstitutional behavior at the behest of the government. And that's yeah. the Supreme Court have set, has said. Supreme Court precedent has said you cannot do this. And that's right. the basis of President Trump's lawsuit is that we've actually crossed that threshold. Right. Where pressure from one political party, pressure from, you know, the White House, from, you know, Congress is pushing these companies to act in ways that they may not otherwise do. And, you know, the very famous Supreme Court precedent, Norwood v. Harrison, 1972, said, no, you can't do that. Hmm. So. Do you think, what do you think will happen with his, with his case? Do you think it'll play out? and actually reach the Supreme Court? It's it's tough to say. I mean, it's difficult to predict in a lot of these legal situations. I think, you know, it was interesting to watch the mainstream commentators, mm -hmm. a lot of the sort of, you know, social media aligned think tanks be like, oh, this is ludicrous and we'll fail and, and et cetera. When I actually read the complaints, I thought there were some fairly novel legal arguments yeah, made. Certainly. And this is these are the type of arguments I think that we need to be making in the sense that, you know, 
it's not actually litigating under Section 230. It's making the argument that Section 230, the way it's been contorted, is now unconstitutional. Right. Yeah. And so I don't know how far it's going to get, but I think that there is precedent for what is being done here. Um, and so we'll see. Yeah. Um, okay. So in kind of looking at how the government is behaving with all of this, I want to take a closer look at Congress. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing all of these hearings over the last couple of years where they brought in these big tech CEOs and social media CEOs and and interviewed them for hours. And I mostly watched the parodies, I have to say. That's that's the, the most entertaining part, yeah. of course. Um, but whatever came of that, what was the goal? Was the goal just to like educate the Congress people who needed like some more insight onto like how the internet and social media actually operate? Or did anything actually come of it? Um, I kind of still haven't seen yeah. anyone talk about it since it's happened. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, hearings have a role, yeah. right? A lot of times, the, the purpose, the definitional purpose of a, of a congressional hearing is information gathering, right? To right. get information okay. to then make decisions about legislation. Now, I don't know if that was event the eventual purpose of these hearings, <laughs> right? In many cases, it was just sort of to hold these tech giants before Congress. Members would chest thump at these hearings and be like, "We're right. watching you. <laughs> we want you to know we're watching you." It's kind of for show, <laughs> right? There's there's always a little bit of theatrics involved right. here, but I do think that. It's been interesting over time, you know, I think Congress, you could make an argument two or three years ago that Congress was really illiterate about a lot of these questions. Yeah. You have that sort of famous example of Orrin Hatch, the former senator from Utah, uh, yes. asking Mark Zuckerberg, how does Facebook make money? And Mark Zuckerberg saying, well, we run ads, right? There, there was, I just think the business model <laughs> right. developed so quickly. Did, yeah, and in many ways by design, you know, the government doesn't keep up because the government mm -hmm. doesn't want to get in front of the innovation yeah. that's, that's happening. Simple. But you know, when it starts to, as we talked about, get to this point where it's it's really having a societal impact, it's changing, you know, how we interact, it's facilitating criminal behavior in some cases, Congress was playing catch up and Congress is playing catch up. And mm -hmm. so I do think a lot of times these hearings, you've seen a definite shift in, in members know a lot more now than yeah. they did in the beginning. They know a lot more about the business model. I think they're aware of the threats, not only to speech, but I think to market power. And that's okay. been the focus of this last year. You've seen a lot of Democrats and now Republicans come out and say, you know, we like the free market, but is the free market actually working here? Right. Or are you actually running afoul of our antitrust laws? And that's hmm. sort of been the next phase of, of the tech okay. debate is now around antitrust. So what are some of the actions um, either on the Hill or in this administration or in the previous administration that have actually been taken to kind of challenge these monopolies? Very limited, I would okay. say, right? Hmm. I mean, the first real antitrust suit against Google was brought by the Trump administration. Um, and that very closely parallels the Microsoft lawsuit, um, you know, back in the 90s. And DOJ, I think, had 50 state attorneys general on board with it. Mm -hmm. You know, that lawsuit is still in process. So that was the first big swipe, I think, at, at the tech companies. Mm -hmm. um, you saw 46 state attorneys general and the FTC bring an antitrust case against Facebook, which was actually just um, dismissed by a federal judge, although he's gonna let them refile within yeah, 30 days. Yeah, so that's yeah. ongoing. Um, so the state attorneys general are also very active on different antitrust, different tax of antitrust against Google and Facebook. So there's a lot of energy around this, yeah. um, but it's only been recent hmm. really. And I think, um, you know, in Congress, you're now seeing a bevy of proposals to reform the antitrust statutes to say, look, you know, we're in this digital economy, right? can our statutes and the way they've been enforced really be applied here or, or do reforms need to be made? 
Yeah, and you kind of touched on this earlier. Um, the debates going on in DC kind of around the big tech issue and kind of how to handle it, um, but even more so in the conservative movement itself. I'm kind of curious because, you know, the conservative movement and Republicans in general have always kind of like touted free market capitalism and, and like, you know, protecting private companies. Um, but to the point where instead of stepping back and like asking how that fits in and works with everything today, it's just become this kind of abstract <laughs> model of right. capitalism, free market stuff. We just kind of talk about it. It's up here. No one really knows how to apply it to reality. Um, so in saying all of that, what are some of the debates going on right now in the conservative movement with actually how to handle this? Yeah, it's a great question because there definitely is a lot of good conversation about this. Because I think to your point, you know, the institutional conservative movement always starts from this idea of, of free market maximalism to some mm -hmm. extent. Like, whatever is good for the market is good for America. Right. You know, whatever, you know, capitalism, you know, to, to its max extent will solve all problems. Right. And in many cases, that's true. Certainly. But in many cases, I think, and our, our history is replete with these cases where, you know, the market can get ahead of, of the society that we, you know, decide that we want through our self-government. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the question right now with big tech. And, you know, our antitrust laws are laws designed to deal with this in many cases, mm -hmm. right? Because the market is an ordered market. It's not, you can't just go do things. There are laws. <laughs> and the antitrust laws are designed to say, if you're going to compete, you have to compete fairly. Right. And so I, you know, and I've made this argument many times to conservatives, you know, that if you care about the free market, you should care about the integrity of the free market. You should Absolutely. make sure it's actually yeah. working. And I think in many cases, when it comes to big tech, we want a free market to work. You know, we mm -hmm. saw Parler which had a lot of interface problems, to be yeah. honest. If you tried to use Parler, you know, sometimes it wasn't the greatest platform. <laughs> not, as, not as easy. But yeah. it had so many users and so much demand mm -hmm. because people wanted an alternative. Yeah. So there, you want alternatives to, to you know, exist and thrive in this space, but if they're not, mm -hmm. that should tell us something. And I think as conservatives, we should be curious and right. say, what's going on here? And again, you know, I think people very much on the right sometimes conflate antitrust with regulation, you know, or antitrust mm, and big government. Yeah. And I would say that antitrust is law enforcement, right? right yeah. it's, it, these are laws that exist to prevent certain behaviors, to make sure that small companies can compete on their merits with big companies. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, one person, one company isn't abusing its, its authority in the market. That's what antitrust is designed to do. Um, I think, you know, it's incumbent on us as a movement to be curious about this. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's, you know, if you look at the DOJ lawsuit, um, brought against Google, there's a very good case to be made that, you know, Google was abusing it or is abusing mm -hmm. its market market authority with this network of exclusionary contracts that actually prevent competition from actually being meaningful in this space. Yeah, that's my next question. Looking more at the companies now. So we talked a lot about the government side of things. Looking at the companies, how do smaller startups compete against these big tech companies? Well, they don't, um, <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and, and it's a sad truth. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, you know, Yes, DuckDuckGo exists. Yes, Bing exists. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, you know, President Trump's or Trump adjacent, the Getter platform now exists. Ah, I did hear about that. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I think the presence of alternatives doesn't mean that there's a competitive market, right? right. And I think we saw this with Parler. Parler was yeah. such a good example because, again, Parler was the first conservative alternative platform that cracked the mainstream. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they had over a million users. They were, and it tells you something that as soon as they got popular, there was this effort by big, you know, Apple, Amazon, they got together, yeah, and, you know, and Google at the same time within 24 hours of each other, deplatform parlor. 
that was the scariest thing of all, I think, just seeing them yes. all team up. Yeah. And, and for transparently yeah. pretextual reasons. Yeah. Um, I think you saw this now in the case of Apple, there was some very, very good oversight work done by Senator Mike Lee and Congressman Ken Buck that got together with Apple and said, show us, you know, the violations here, mm -hmm. because we now know from the, you know, the excuse was, oh, well, January 6th was organized on Parler and there was all this hateful things going on on Parler. Well, we now know from the DOJ charging documents around January 6th that those charging documents list posts on Facebook, on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, on YouTube, much more than Par yeah. Parler's referenced, I think, eight times. Yeah. And the other platforms are referenced close to 100 times. Yeah. So as far so, as I knew, everyone who was on Parler was also still on all the other right. platforms. So, so yeah. if that, if your, if your reasoning is, if the reasoning of Apple was we have to get rid of people, you know, right. that did this, on, then why is YouTube still on there? on right. your platform. Why is Facebook yeah. unmolested? Right. Right. And so the pressure that was brought to bear on, on by Mike Lee and Ken Buck, Parler actually got back into the Apple App Store, but they're not back on Google and you know they're not back yeah. on, on Amazon. And I think it just goes to tell you the, the economic dominance of these platforms that if you're not in the Google Play and the Apple App Store and you're an app, you're not reaching a mainstream audience. Yeah. That is the oxygen Certainly. a small business needs to survive and to reach a mainstream audience. So right. That to me says something is wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that to me is a Absolutely. flashing red light. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully, I think we've seen some curiosity from lawmakers about that. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Do you think this is all part of some greater agenda or should we give them the benefit of the doubt that they do operate for the most part, other than the parlor example, independently trying to take down dangerous content, but other non-dangerous content might get caught in the crossfire? Um, should we give them that benefit of the doubt at times, or do you think this is kind of all part of a greater agenda here? Well, it was interesting, speaking of congressional hearings, mm -hmm. a hearing maybe, gosh, within the last year, because um, these platforms say they all operate independently. Right. Senator Josh Hawley brought whistleblower claims actually mm -hmm. to a hearing with Mark Zuckerberg that, that alleged that Facebook has an internal program which they talk to other moderators at Google, you know, at Twitter, and they all sort of work together yeah. on these ideas. And, you know, it's difficult to prove. We don't know. But right. the fact that they all act in the same way, usually within 24 hours of each other, yeah. it's, 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 you know, the appearance is there, if not the actual fact. And so, you know, there's no wonder I think people, people are yeah. curious about that. Certainly. And if, if we were going to give them a, the benefit of the doubt, what would... I guess, what would you suggest that social media companies do to kind of minimize dangerous content, but also, you know, don't minimize free speech and don't discourage and don't try to suppress free speech? You know, that's the moderator's dilemma, right? right. Is that you, you want to take the bad stuff down, but you yeah. want to allow free, free speech to flourish. And how do you define free speech? Because, you know, we have a very broad first amendment in this country. Thank yeah. God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, what is allowed under the first amendment, you might not want to see, mm -hmm. right. You may not want to see Nazi rhetoric, right? right. You may not want to see, you know, crush videos of kittens, even though yeah. those things are allowed under yeah. the first amendment. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a choice that has to be made by these platforms, but I think by and large, it's fairly clear that political speech should be protected. Yep. It's fairly clear that, you know, religious expression should be protected, um, you know, and I think allowing users also the flexibility to decide what it is and what, what they want to see and what they don't want to see, um, that's a user empowerment feature that no platform exactly. has really engaged in, but I think would be helpful. And, you know, I think the platforms will say, well, it's very hard for us to like monitor all this kind of speech. I think that was true in 1996. I mm -hmm. think it's harder to make the argument now. 
um, that they can't detect these things with the advent of artificial intelligence, with the more technical ability they have to, to spot and remove really actually harmful yeah. content. Um, but I think the more ability users have over their own social media experience, the better we'll be. But we have Absolutely. not seen that develop yet. It's kind of taking the whole nanny government concept and now we're applying it to like big tech. So people turn to big tech to kind of take care of anything that offends them or that they think is hateful towards them. Um, you know, it's, I think it, when we look at the world that way, we forget that our free speech, uh, our First Amendment free speech is inclusive of hate speech, offensive mm -hmm. speech, and all of these things that we would think are very derogatory um, and, and would want taken down. But it's like, why is the automatic reaction to just turn to the company and be like, take this down for me. I can't stand it. It's offensive. Um, rather than rather than to say like, well, I'm just, I'm going to, on my own, not follow this person yeah. anymore. Just kind of block the content on my own. Well, I think, you know, the, the left and, and some libertarian on the right accuse conservatives of this, right? Mm -hmm. They say, well, why are you, you know, you, you're trying to force a platform to remove speech or to host mm -hmm. speech. And I think that the question really comes down to what decisions the companies are, are making, right? right? Because the problem right now is that the speech they do remove is largely conservative, right? <laughs> well, they give, pretty up, you yeah. know, massive exposure to, you know, left-leaning speech or things of that nature. And why that matters is because of scale. It goes back to this idea that, the you know, Google has a market share for 90% of America. Facebook is so dominant. And I think it's like over half of American adults get their news through Facebook now. And so if yeah. those are the primary yeah. information gathering avenues, then yes, it absolutely matters. Yeah. You know, what they choose to suppress and what they choose to allow. It's because of scale. And again, this is why my preferred solution to dealing with tech is actually antitrust enforcement. <laughs> because I think if you break you know, the dominance of these platforms, then you allow a free market to work and you allow alternatives to arise and you create a situation where it becomes less important about their content moderation because Google's only doing it for 30% of the country, not mm -hmm. 90%. And people get their news from all different kinds of sources. That's a world I, yeah. I want to see. So you're saying a big part of this can actually be taken care of by just enforcing the law. That's my belief. Now, yeah. I do think that, um, you know, over time, our antitrust law has narrowed in its application. Mm -hmm. So I do think that certain reforms are necessary. We don't need to upend, I don't think, the whole system. Mm -hmm. But I do think, you know, and Senator Mike Lee has put forward a bill that sort of tweaks the antitrust law to make sure it captures, you know, actually anti-competitive intent mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and it's full, it's in its full remit. But I do think, you know, our antitrust laws, even though they don't deal with speech concerns directly, a lot of the speech concerns I think are downstream of market power. And if you crack that and you allow a free market to exist, you can compete a lot of those speech concerns away. Right. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how our competitors and enemies such as like China, Russia, Iran have taken advantage of kind of the current situation in America right now. Not only our dependency and reliance on social media and these big tech companies, but also the I guess kind of the un-American environment that we're operating in right now where we're being censored and information is being withheld and modified from us. So I'm curious, like, what, what do you, are they taking advantage of this situation? I mean, yes. <laughs> like, I, it's interesting because we are in a technology war with China, right? Yeah. Now, a technology cold war, particularly around the development of artificial intelligence, right? Whoever yeah. wins oh, the yes. AI battle is going to dominate forever, basically, yeah. in my mind. And our, one of our biggest sort of national champions for the development of AI is Google. Mm -hmm. And Google 
instead of focusing on, on AI, their AI team has been caught up in this like woke struggle session for the last, you know, eight or nine months now. Oh, and right, no one yeah. loves that more than China because mm -hmm. instead of focusing on the actual technology development in ways that will, you know, supercharge America's capacity, you know, we're having, you know, diversity problems. Right? Right. And then that's, that's our, you know, locus of focus, right. <laughs> basically. Yeah. And China looks at that and they're like, well, we don't have to work that hard because, right. you know. And they've got so many years ahead of us too. I mean, with all their, with how much control they have over, like, if you look at TikTok platforms and stuff, I mean, AI, a big part of it, a big part of the development of AI is just information gathering. All you have to do is yeah. just collect as much data as possible. Yeah. And I do think that China's also taken advantage of our free markets in a sense, oh, because, yeah. you know, they come in, Chinese companies come in and, and because of the way China operates, all of their so-called private companies are arms of the state in right. many significant ways, yep. including TikTok, including Huawei, including mm -hmm. all these companies, yet our system treats them as though they're private actors. And so they gain access to us as consumers, right. all of our data in the case of Huawei, you know, could our infrastructure and because of new, you know, a new cybersecurity law passed in China a couple of years ago, the Chinese state has access to all of the data and sort of all the inner workings of any country that, or any company mm -hmm. that operates within its borders. That is a, that poses a very significant security threat. Yeah, and we haven't quite caught up with that. We are still in a situation where you have TikTok, which I believe is a national security threat, and we have no idea what to do, right? Yeah. We, we tried to ban it, but then, you know, we didn't. And Biden administration's like, <laughs> kind of in the same boat yeah, and nobody's definitely knows. still around. Yeah, nobody knows what to do with it. Yeah. And so I, I do think we need to find our footing right. as it relates to some of these Chinese companies because I do think that they pose a fairly significant national security risk in a, in a way we're not used to. Right. And I guess how my next question then would be how do we go about informing the public of this? Because just everyone always knows that during like these major elections, one of the few things people are very interested in hearing about most of the time is foreign policy, national security issues, unless it's like an immediate threat. Um, most people are interested kind of in like domestic policy issues. Um, so when you're looking, when you're talking about China, I feel like when it comes to foreign policy, you've just kind of flooded everything with China. And I don't know if anyone's really listening anymore just because they've kind of just heard it so many times. How do we actually get the people of America interested um, and motivated to do something about what China's doing with technology in the US? I think this is something we just have to start talking about because I think people don't realize how far China is yeah. ahead of us in some of these in some of these things. And it's interesting the Senate, you know, tried to grapple with this a couple of months ago. You know, they passed a big bill that was designed to take on China in these high tech fields, you know, quantum physics and you know high yeah, you so know high tech AI yeah. and things like that. But it didn't really. It was very clunky, mm -hmm. right? It was yeah. like we're going to fund the National Science Foundation, who's you know <laughs> going to give grants to universities, and it's like, yeah. you know, that's a part of the solution, yeah. But it's not really the whole. And I think when you start to talk to people about AI, for instance, I mean, mm -hmm. people generally understand that that's sort of the next phase of of the technological yeah. revolution, and you know where we are versus where China is. You know, when you look back at how we've engaged these problems before, it's been a very whole of government approach. It's been a whole of economy approach. And yeah. I think we have to start talking about, you know, China in those terms, because in my view, and this isn't shared ex exclusively on the right, but in my view, China presents the most sort of geo-economically significant threat yeah. that we face. Yeah. Um, if we are to maintain our sort of hegemony and our, mm -hmm. our you know, global marketplace, we have to address China and and that requires, again, a much more comprehensive way of discussing it than I think we have. Yeah, I mean, do you think it's worth, I mean, 
so China obviously has a big, um, I don't know, do they own half of Disney? Um, and they like all of the, they have a huge pool in Hollywood. Um, I remember when they remade Red Dawn years ago and they wanted to use China because that was the most, that was the most logical, like no other country would have been able to pull off a Red Dawn scenario other than China at the time. So just like the previous one was the Soviet Union, but they had to replace it with the North Koreans who were like the least realistic country to be able to pull something like that off because China threw a fit. And so it's just kind of like you get you get all these demands from the CCP on like how Hollywood and kind of what pe what pe consumers are hearing and seeing all the time. Um, is there room to kind of help motivate people through like film and that kind of industry? Uh, well, this would require Hollywood to stop being beholden to China. Right. You know, I think the, one of the problems that we face, uh, you know, in, in being able to take on China and a whole of economy approach is that so many of our industries are tied to China and in a way that I think is dangerous to be totally yeah. honest. I mean, yeah. you, you've seen Hollywood actors, John Cena most recently, you right. know, oh, yeah, made a reference that. to Taiwan and then had to give this horribly yeah. humiliating, like yeah. in my mind, apology to China for yeah. doing that. You know, you see Apple, you know, being accused of using slave labor in mm -hmm. Xinjiang and, you know, Google, you know, we pay, the government of the United States gives taxpayer money to Google to work on AI and, a, and Google is opening an AI office in Beijing, hmm. right? So I, it, we have to sort of grapple with this idea that our, our you know, the NBA goes to China yeah. and, you know, has no issue, you know, the NBA right. who, who does all these things, you know, for social justice in America, but is completely silent oh, yeah. when you have actual yeah. genocide right. of Uyghur Muslims in China because they just actual want evidence them. right yeah mm -hmm. so that's you know until I think we crack that nexus and we and we really get America's businesses mm -hmm. to say you know this is the great moral issue of our time you know we don't want to do business here right but that requires distorting a lot of economic incentives you know that if we've laid the groundwork for for the last yeah. you know thirty years or so certainly. So speech suppression is clearly evident. Whether people avoid saying what they really think um, or what they want to say um, because they know they will get their accounts turned off or shut down um, or they don't want to get lambasted by their peers online, we are technically able to communicate more efficiently and clearly than ever. And yet we have to, we want to shut each other down. It's kind of a fascinating way to think about it. Um, so this goes against our core principles as Americans. Um, do you see us? regaining those freedoms? Do you see us move? Do you see this as like an upward curve here or what do you, what are your predictions? You know, in the short term, it worries me very much. And it's not only for sort of the enforced censorship that we're seeing, you know, across our major social media platforms, which I believe sort of constitute the public square at this point, Yeah. but it's the self-censorship that results. And you kind of mentioned this, this idea yeah. that people don't speak up, yeah. that they're afraid to speak up that all of the incentives are for them to stay silent. And it's interesting, George Orwell, who wrote very famously about government censorship, right. also wrote in a foreword that was never published to Animal Farm, wrote a very compelling hmm. essay about the dangers of self-censorship to the point where they were almost more insidious than government censorship, because you start to change the way a free people think and act. Yep, you start to- And, and it's enforced exactly. not by the government, but by themselves, you know, by private huh. industry, by social opprobrium. Um, and that I think has a very, significant and scary threat, you know, yeah. and, and the changes, I think the nature of what it means to be a free people, the way we've always understood it. Right. Anyway. Absolutely. Um, it raises the cost of free expression and how does the self-government, how does a free people survive when that's the case? I think it definitely changes us. And that's something I think we all need to be thinking about.
Yeah, absolutely. We should constantly be reflecting on these questions. How much freedom are we willing to give up? Mm -hmm. um, so that is, I will go ahead and end it there. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not such a, such a dark note, but some, to give everyone something to think about really um, and, and to walk away with. Uh, this is well said. It's a bi-weekly uh, show, live show, where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, activists on higher education, uh, freedom of speech, American culture. You can share this episode on Facebook, YouTube. Also, we have podcasts, so you can download it on Apple, Anchor, Spotify. Give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard today. Thank you so much, Rachel, for being with us. Really appreciate it. I'm Sharice Trump, and Rachel, that was well said. Thank you.